You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Uh, I think I, I was emailing a little bit, talking about how easy, whatever her name is, makes Iggy Azalea on OF. Wait, Iggy Azalea is on OnlyFans? Yeah, she, uh, yep. she made... 350k in her first 24 hours. Wow, I'm going on OnlyFans. Are you? Are you actually? No. Dudes are horny, man. What can you say? Okay. Why don't people, other than porn, like every site in the if you think about it, the trend of almost every business starts with porn. Who needed cell phones first? Drug dealers, hookers, prostitutes, yeah. whatever. Who used Yahoo first? The biggest profit source center at Yahoo in 1997 was porn. Patreon, I couldn't even believe it. We found this out on one podcast. Patreon is like almost all porn. You just don't <laughs> see it. Oh, it really is only fans, but they pretend like they're for creators and artists and stuff like that, right? Yeah, but maybe only fans, like, like if Richard Branson went on only fans, he'd get a good subscriber base, right? Yeah, fair enough. It's uh, it's if if you're a fan of uh, someone, period, you're willing to give them money, right? Like, yeah, and that's uh, that's just how it works.
I mean, and it's kind of like rich with money, if you think about it. Like, I, I bet you OnlyFans will evolve into something more legit. Diva, I've seen them run ads on uh, Reddit and social. Like, they're like, they're trying to play like the stuff that we mentioned. Like, they're trying to say like, hey, we also do artist stuff, right? Like, if you were like a, a rock band, like you could sell like swag to your fans if you wanted to. Yeah, so it's it's interesting to see how things evolve, which is really the subject of this podcast. Trung, you wrote such an excellent article, like the worst tech predictions ever. And why did you research that? And, you know, some of them were phenomenal, but and you make some good conclusions from them. But like, why did you start researching this? I mean, you know how end of the year, right? It, it, you know the lists are coming. Yeah. It's like my predictions for 2023 and... And this is what I got right or wrong for 2022. And I, I'll be honest, like I'm, I've just never been a prediction person. And I understand the value of doing prediction, right? Like it forces you to think. Maybe I'm just cognitively lazy in that respect. I'm just like, I'm also, I, I really enjoy history. So I kind of like looking back more and like see and trying to learn like these timeless lessons. We talked, right? The last time we chat was about Buffett. And you'd written a book about Buffett and uh, and uh, his early days uh, before people kind of knew him as a buy and hold guy, as a trader. And it was like, it's just interesting to, these are timeless lessons, right? That's one of the big Buffett takeaways. Things are timeless, like Charlie Munger with the human psychology is like a lot of the things that happen just end up happening again. So I kind of like prefer to look to the past. And in this case, it was like the past of what were considered the worst predictions ever but then why did they make them because it's really easy to have like a top line story and to dunk on people particularly when you're on twitter as much as i am but uh, uh like the steve Ballmer one's a great example like he probably has one of the most famous bad predictions ever right like you you were much more into tech at that time i'd like i'll just say it now and I, i'm glad to hear your perspective at the time but in 2007 when Steve Ballmer heard about the iPhone, he's like, oh, it's, that thing's going to fail. It, it, $500 uh, subsidized, like there's just no chance anybody's ever going to buy that or it's not going to get meaningful share, right? That was his entire take and he's been dunked on for 15 years. So I want to look back at those types of predictions, the ones that have become historically bad, but understand why they were made and like what we can kind of learn from them. So I want to ask you, is like, do you remember when that prediction was made and then yeah. and uh, that whole time? Yeah. Yeah, and I remember I was in the, I was, the day the iPhone was being released, I was very bullish on the iPhone because okay. I loved the iTouch, which was sort of like this device that was in between the iPod and the iPhone. Like you could listen to music and the screen was just wide enough. It was like a, it was the screen was a wide, like a phone is now uh, you could watch movies. And so I couldn't believe when the iTouch came out. Oh my gosh, yeah. I can watch all my favorite TV shows now, not just listen to a thousand songs of music, but like all my favorite TV shows. So it was amazing. And then they told me, oh my, we're going to add a phone to that as well. Like I wasn't even thinking of apps or games or anything like that. Like I, this is going to be amazing. And, you know, you mentioned the point that sometimes people are talking their book, like Bomber had an incentive to kind of, you know, most phones back then, we're using the Microsoft mobile operating system. Like Nokia was using an operating system by Microsoft. So he's a little bit what's called talking his book, which is he has incentive, personal financial incentive to put down Apple. But still, you can't make him, his word is not going to define what the world does. He knows that. So he's making a real prediction. But he wasn't the only one. I, I was in the Wall Street Journal offices just visiting, and I wrote for them at the time. And uh, there were, I ran into some hedge fund manager there, well-known guy, and he said, 
there is no way this succeeds. He was telling me like, you know, I'm like, it's definitely going to sell a million units in the first six months. And I forget how much it actually sold, but I think it was much more than that. And he said, this thing is just going to flop and disappear. This is not Apple's business. They're, they're not going to be able to do it. It's, it doesn't even look good. So I don't know. I think sometimes people like to be, I don't know what it is. Like this guy was a smart guy. He wasn't talking his book. Like he had no incentive to say it. He was making a legitimate prediction as I think large, like let's say bomber was 80% prediction, 20% personal bias. And I think people sometimes just like to be negative. You sound smarter when you're negative. You sound right, like, right. Oh, like if I say, oh my gosh, this is going to sell 10 million units. I sound like an idiot. <laughs> like 10 million is a big number. And I'm saying 10 million people are going to buy this. Like, what do I know? It's easier to say, well, you know, it's not that good because of this, this, this reason. And, you know, there's already good phones. People don't need another phone and they already have their iPod. And so you just sound smart. Stripe co-founder uh, Patrick Carlson has actually something very similar to what he said. He says, cynics sound smart, but optimists get paid. Yeah. Like if you're a pessimist and you're cynical, it sounds really smart, right? Because you're like, here's 30 reasons why this thing will fail. Whereas as you kind of alluded to, if you're just like, hey, it's just going to sell 10 million because I believe it's a good product. It's just like, you just sound like you have your pom-poms out, right? But that that's, the, that's his phraseology is like, it's probably better to lean towards optimism and... Uh, especially if you believe the long arc of progress. Right? So I think maybe some more framing for the listeners is uh, I, I can run through like broader idea yeah. around the article and what I was. So basically the, the article I wrote, which, uh, and I, and again, I dropped it because I didn't want to make a predictions article, but I had to do like timely year end beginning yeah. of year stuff. So uh, I, I had known and over the years just collected anytime somebody had just mentioned this really bad prediction. Because you know that's like, the number one way to put somebody down is to be like, oh, you remember the time you said so-and-so? It's like, anytime that Steve Ballmer oh, says anything now, me. people I, will just- I get that in my <laughs> inbox every single day. Oh, yeah. Well, listen, you've written multiple books about the future and you're always prognosticating and thinking out, right? Like you have a very organized system that you've written about and like I've read and like try to implement some of the ways you think about the future. So you understand- the value of making predictions, but then you also know how hard it gets thrown back in your face, right? But and that's yeah. something I wrote as kind of like a lesson. It's like even if ninety nine out of hundred of your predictions are good, yeah. And and if you're willing to accept that some you'll get a snarky email, then it forces you to at least think about the future a bit, right? So like yeah. these predictions that I just kept collecting, and uh, it it all came uh, through that some of the most like successful and people well-placed to make predictions just made the worst predictions, right? And they were just so wrong about their industry. And I, I'm not even saying that in a way to be like negative towards their sentiment to even want to make predictions. It's just the idea to me is like the best people in the history of the 20th century business, well-placed to make predictions, just made awful predictions, right? And I'll just give some examples that's touched on in the article. I mean, the really famous one was at the uh, 1903. The automobile is a fad. Horses are here to stay. That was said by the president of a Michigan savings bank. He was dealing with the Henry Ford lawyer who wanted an investment. And uh, they said, this is, it's not going to happen. But the context that he said it was like very reasonable. He's like, here's why I think this car idea is dumb and it's not going to work. It's like, everybody thought bikes were going to be the big things at the end of the 19th century. But the way I saw it, this is the Michigan savings bank guy. He's like, I've seen like bank usage drop over like the past decade. So I'm just going to extrapolate my experience with this new mobile, like mobility technology. And like, that's going to happen with cars. It's going to be all hyped and then kind of go away and horses are here to stay. Right. It's like 
pretty reasonable if you're in his shoes at the time. Like, would, would you kind of agree with that? You know, I don't know because, well, first off, he, he was looking at it as a banker because Henry right. Ford wanted them much more conservative. Or, or maybe Henry Ford wanted to borrow money from them. Like Henry Ford was doing business with him. And Henry Ford, the Ford Motor Company that we know now, was Henry Ford's third company, third automobile company. The first two went bankrupt. So part of it is the bank president knows this information, obviously, and maybe his conclusion from just Henry Ford's experience is that you're never going to succeed because you didn't succeed before because people just don't want cars. And that was his conclusion, maybe. But the other thing is he's sort of missing out, like, what is, you have to sort of ask, why does something succeed? And, and I talk about this a lot on the podcast, but something succeeds because people are incredibly frustrated with the old way and they want a new way. Well, maybe people want to travel across country in a, in a car. They can't ride a horse across country or right. a train is sometimes expensive or uncomfortable and, and you, know, you can't do it on a bicycle. So, you know, he, he didn't understand what, you know, it reduces commute time. So you could live in a suburb, like the creation of the cars that is was is what created the suburbs because now you could live in a house with a plot of land. You don't have to live like in a tenement building in in the middle of the city if you're a factory worker in in you know a, a manufacturing firm. So he didn't understand the frustrations that people had. I think a lot of bad predictions come from that. That's different from pricing predictions. That's also a type of prediction. But also, again, I still always think it's a way to have power over other people. Like. This is the last time sure. in that banker's life that he had power over Henry Ford, who became like the richest man in the world. Sure. And and like this is the last time Steve Ballmer had power over Steve Jobs. That's a great point. Well, though, this is a great lesson though, right? It's the idea of like, if you're in that position, exactly how you frame it. I didn't even think about this, but like if you're in a position to be a decider for somebody's fate or technology's fate, like think about, are you thinking about it from the lens of, okay, first principles thinking, right? a human psychology thing? Or are you thinking it from kind of the way you're saying it? Like from that lens, it's like, you know what? I can like snuff this person out or I can like, I can exact my will over them because as you say, I'm in this position of power. I think that's a very useful kind of frame to think about predictions or if you're approached with opportunities, like are you making a first principles judgment or are you letting all these other factors come into play? And I think it could be subconscious. Like I think it, people might not know. They see that we are, we're all in a hierarchy. So we all want to kind of establish ourselves over others. And sometimes you have to take a step back and say, why do I really feel this? Why am I excited about this? Or why? Right. And, and also you have to realize sometimes you could be wrong. So like I was talking to the founder of Waze the other day, uh, you know, the mapping company. Yeah. And on Waze, customers, when they pass a traffic jam, they, they write into ways, oh, there's a traffic jam here. And if you had pitched this idea to me 15 years ago, I would have said, that's so ridiculous. I would never, if I'm passing a traffic jam, I've passed it. I'm done. It's, I'm, it's out of my head. Why would I help people? Not that I'm mean, but why would I even think about the people 20 miles down the road who might want to know there's a traffic jam here? Like, I wouldn't think that you could create a social network of drivers like that anonymous drivers. And yet it became one of the most popular applications ever and, and sold for a billion dollars. So it's human psychology, right? Like you're kind of nailing it. It's like the idea you'd want to help somebody is this idea of reciprocity. It's like, yeah. okay, this I'm going to help this individual or these people behind me because if, if I can foster that, it's like I'm going to benefit in the future, right? So like, I, I think it's really, I love how you've kind of brought in 
the psychology angle of like making predictions. And uh, as you know, some of it could be subconscious. But uh, I think from these two examples who did the car and the Steve Ballmer one already is like, okay, when they're making these statements, it's like, just think about why the statements are being made, right? Just don't have that knee-jerk reaction of being like, oh my God, they're so wrong. Yeah. Just be like, okay, why is this being made? Why is it being made and who's making them and what other reasons might they have for making them? And also, why aren't they considering, like, why aren't they steel manning their prediction? Like, like, right. like for instance, you know, let's say I'm going to say, oh, Tesla stock is going to hit 300 next year. I'm sure of it. Let's say I say that. Well, steel manning, I should be able to also argue that, look, there's, here's why Tesla stock could hit $10 next year also. I should right. be able to argue that point as well as arguing that it's going to hit for 300 And then I make a decision based on really understanding both sides of the story. Like, why doesn't Steve Ballmer think that people would want a phone, a music player, a movie watcher, a game player, all in one device. Why wouldn't he think that? Well, I mean, what's funny is he looked back. Uh, I also include in the article. So he, the, the people approached him. He's been asked a ton, ton about it. Right? It's like, Steve, awful prediction. Like, what was the, like, we're asking, what lesson did you get from it? And I thought this was interesting, what he said. I was kind of, uh, I, I, somebody, a veteran in the tech industry told me this take was not the right one, but I want to say it anyways. Steve Ballmer said that why he misjudged the iPhone was he was looking at it just, you know, as a technologist, but he completely missed the other moves that Steve Jobs was doing, right? It was, this, it was a business model innovation. It wasn't just like a technological innovation, but Steve Jobs, a lot of people may not remember, but the amount of effort he put into having those carrier relationships to have the phone subsidized and exclusive to one carrier uh, globally was he had a, at one point as many people on the carrier negotiation team. So he had about 50 people negotiating carrier relationships. That's about how many software engineers they had working on the mobile OS. So like this is how important Steve realized it was for the proper carrier relationship. And he had learned that from a disastrous, uh, you probably remember this, they did the uh, iTunes phone with Mo Motorola and it was a complete disaster. But he learned how phone companies and phone manufacturers work. And he's like, okay, he looked up and down the stack. He's like, this is like the, the point where I can leverage Apple's brand is to with the carriers. And that's the lesson he took. So, St so Steve Ballmer said, I missed the iPhone because I missed that business model innovation on top of the fact that it's his job to kind of like look at things 360. It's not a real pass for him. And I guess somebody told me that the other reason they don't really buy his excuse was that a BlackBerry uh, had already done a lot of carrier subsidies at the time. So it was like, a, we're very, it's been established that that's something you do for a higher end phone. But uh, yeah, I mean, maybe Steve Ballmer's rationalizing, but I, I do think an important lesson from that though, is when you're, looking at technological predictions particularly, a lot of it is just based around, hey, is this technology going to be able to get to this point in XYZ? Like take nuclear energy, for example. It's like, will we be able to actually do fusion uh, with X amount of inputs? But then the other part is you got to look at the rest of the playing field, right? In Steve Ballmer's case, he missed the business model innovation. He's like, what are the business implications if you can go to a carrier? Whereas for nuclear, if you only focus on the technology, uh, you're not necessarily looking at, well, what is actually the really important thing, right? What is the government going to allow? Nuclear is probably not the best example because of how much, how involved government is. No, no, been, I think that's a good example think, because the same thing applies. Like if something solves an enormous need, 
then yeah. you can't stop it ultimately. You know, like let's take AI as an example. Like right now, a lot of the articles, half the articles say chat GPT is, I don't know, already conscious or whatever. And half the articles say this is useless. It's wrong all the time. Uh, you know, I asked it about Abraham Lincoln. It said Abraham Lincoln was a school teacher, blah, blah, blah. Chat GPT makes some mistakes, but it's just going to get better. <laughs> like the next version is going to be 10 times as many quote unquote synapses. The next version after that is going to be a billion times as many synapses. So it's just going to get better. Everything gets better. People forget that technology even is right now in every industry is getting better at a faster rate because the simulators on computers of new technologies, that also is getting faster. So business model innovation is going to get faster. Oh, there's problems with carriers. No problem. Eventually the carriers are going to disappear because everything's going to be on some kind of like universal Wi-Fi. Who knows? Like at some point, every sort of artificial problem disappears. So, and all you're left with is need. That's a great point, right? And again, yeah, exactly. It goes back to once you have these artificial, even technical obstacles, it comes back to what is the human desire ultimately, right? And what is the human psychology around the type of day-to-day -day use cases they want to have? I thought your example of AI is, uh, is a perfect one, right? It's like the big one that I've dealt with and read and write on is like the implications of teachers, right? And universities having to deal with chat GPT. I mean, the, just the reality is this, it's like, like New York public school system just said that they get rid of ChatGPT from the networks and the Wi-Fi access, uh, but it's ridiculous because kids are going to find a way anyways, right? And uh, the reality is that you have to teach them how to integrate it into their lives, right? It, the the idea isn't to tell them that they can't use it. What you have to tell them is like, listen, if you only rely on this, you're going to be expendable. So you got find you got to find a way to use it and, and integrate it into like your life and workflows. So. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great point is a lot of these technologies, another frame to look at it is they are in a sense inevitable. Like there's no putting the genie back for chat GPT, right? Like that's impossible yeah. at this point. But we know it's out there and every major uh, big tech uh, player is going to have some version of it. But Google's is apparently way better than OpenAI's. Really? But they just have regulatory and business reasons not to release it, right? And they don't want to cannibalize all their business and, and, uh, and the stuff that you kind of mentioned. Like if it was if they had that out in public and it was often, often wrong, the liability for Google is massive versus an open AI. I mean, let me ask you a question. The very first time you rode in an Uber, what was the experience like? Oh, yeah. You knew immediately there's a better way. Whether or not Uber has actually turned out to be like, you know, the amount of capital it's burned and all that, and like even now it's quote unquote more expensive than some taxis. Just that experience was so much better. Every taxi... A fleet now in Vancouver has a mobile option, right? They have to. And that's just table yeah. stakes. So yeah, 100%. It will never go back to not having that. Right. Like I, I remember it was like 2009 or 2010. I forget the year. And I, I was taking my daughter out in the town. It was her birthday. She was like 10 years old or something. We, we went to some show. And then afterwards, it was raining in New York City. If you know, that's impossible to get a cab. Like every, 100 people are outside this movie theater in the pouring rain. Everyone has their hand up for a cab and all the cabs, of course, are full and just passing by. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there and I'm, oh, my friend told me, use this new app, Uber. And I did it, this like, you know, black SUV rolls up. Everyone's looking, my daughter and I like climb in it, like we're famous movie stars or something. And we drive <laughs> off and I couldn't stop smiling. Like this, like was incredible. 
And I don't have to know about the technology. I don't even have to know about the business model, anything. This is not going away. Like, and, and it's the same thing for my first day in an Airbnb or the first time I used an iPod actually. And for an iPhone, iPhone, what could be better than an iPod with a phone on it? Like you just know some things are going to work because they just make you so happy that you're using them. Absolutely. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first-class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I was just talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop. Really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do. 
but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You're, you have this amazing bad prediction in here. Internet prediction number two, 1998. If you want, you could read it and, and describe who said it. Oh, yeah. You want the Paul Krugman one? I mean, that's yeah. probably the most famous one. There's actually a lot of lessons to draw from his prediction here because he's addressed it. I mean, this one is just so famous, right? So Paul Krugman, a New York Times uh, opinion writer, famous economist. Nobel Prize winning economist. Nobel Prize winning economist uh, wrote in a Red Herring, a publication, for an article titled Why Most Economic Predictions Are Wrong, which is so ironic. But he said that the internet will ultimately have the same impact on the world as the fax machine. Like that was his prediction as to how widespread it would be. And obviously in hindsight, it's just comically wrong. We talked earlier about people that frequently get dunked on. Anytime he says anything, this it's literally just a picture of him with this quote, just like that's a, that's a reply, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the two parts I want to ask about this was, number one, well, uh, more of a comment than a question for you. So the comment was he, uh, when asked about that bad prediction, he just, he just took the L, right? He's like, yeah, it, it was bad. And, uh, but he also makes the point of like, listen, I was just trying to be a bit provocative at the time. I was being asked and, you know, he's a media figure and it, it's always better to stake something in the ground. Like if he had just said, oh, I don't know, the internet will probably be fine. Like no, no one's going to care, right? So in the business of prediction, obviously, the more extreme you get, the more attention that will garner you, right? I think one of the most famous ones, I think you know Scott Adams. Yeah. And uh, he made the one in uh, 2015 when Trump started his campaign. Uh, the New York Times election meter said uh, Hillary Clinton has a 98% chance of, or Donald Trump has a 2% chance of winning this election. So Scott Adams literally just wrote a blog. He's like, I'm going to take the exact opposite of this. He just wrote, Donald Trump has a 98% chance of winning this election, right? It's just like the most extreme position. So Krugman took that kind of the most extreme position, like comparing internet to fax machine, which is like a middling technology, which was effective, but wasn't like computer or, or telegraph or telephones. Uh, so he took that L. But uh, the other thing that was interesting in the article was like, and we talked about it earlier, is like people only remember you kind of for the worst predictions, right? Yeah. And uh, you've made so many. So I, this is what I wanted to ask. Is like, So Paul Krugman in the same article, he's like, oh yeah, by the way, uh, we'll probably have a commodities crunch in the next couple of years, like based on what I'm seeing. And then if you had uh, invested in kind of his prediction at the time, like, yeah, put your, some money into commodities and the internet will not be the uh, the real deal. He says here uh, that the commodities were up, I think, eight times over the following five years, and then NASDAQ all the imploded. So like, if you had actually like, invested on that article at that time, you would have made a killing, right? Um, but he got, he got skewered for it. So uh, what I want to ask specifically was, you mentioned 
that you have to brace yourself for the negative opinions, right? So how do you, you make so many predictions? Like, how do you think about it now? Do you even care if some get thrown back in your face? Like what are, what's your processes around it? I, I do care in some cases because first off, like when you, when you write something like you're, you're a writer, you write things and you make predictions and you know, at some point somebody's going to be jealous of you or angry at you. And maybe it's already happened and people are going to start writing things about you. And what they're going to do is they're going to cherry pick all the worst things you've done or said over the years. And, you know, I've, you know, I wrote a book for instance, about stocks called the forever portfolio. I wrote this in like 2008, it came out in 2008 during the financial crash. So nobody bought the book. But if I look at what happened to those companies that I recommend you hold forever, most of them have trounced the market. Like they've done really well. But people will. What were some? What were some names about? Uh, uh, just uh, you know, I don't even remember. I think I had Apple in there. I think I had. Yeah. Um, there was some company that uh, seared off tattoos. I kind of figured a trend was that nobody's going to want uh, their old. When as as the baby boomers get older, they're going to want to get rid of their saggy tattoos. So I love that. So there was a company that specifically specialized in that. And I recommended that company. Oh, there was a company that had the patents on seatbelts and, and air, airbags and cars. And I figure car safety is never going away as a problem unless people use seatbelts and airbags. So that did very well. Like anything that was part of a big overarching trend. But there were some things that didn't do well. And those are the only ones I ever hear about. Or people even cherry pick news items. Like let's say, I'm, I'm going to just say a hypothetical. Let's say I predicted, oh, some major city on the East Coast is going to have major financial problems for a long time, perhaps forever. And, and then there's like one piece of good news about that city. Suddenly everybody will be on Twitter, like, you know, F J Altucher, like, here's this. And, post <laughs> and I'm like, what about, do you read any other news other than this? Like, do you know the facts? Like, and nobody, I never even respond to people because it's pointless because people go, go crazy. You know, the, the thing is 1% of people are actually, you know, have serious mental issues. And that means if you're hitting a general audience, 1% of your readers yeah. are maniacs and they're go you're going to hear, you're not going to hear from the 99% of normal people. You're going to hear from the 1% maniacs who hate your guts. Like I have one guy who has a whole blog that says I've implanted chips in his brain and I'm part of like the global Illuminati of Jews that are trying to control him and blah, blah, blah. And he goes on and on with some serious threats. But, uh, you know, I, I do get bothered when people just cherry pick these things and ignore the fact, like for instance, take the internet. All right. I had the same experience as going to my first Uber when I first used a web browser. So I was early on, I went to grad school for computer science right when the web was rolling out. So I used the early Mozilla, Mosaic, and then Netscape, all these, and I knew how to make a website. So in 1995, 96, I was making AmericanExpress.com timewarner.com, all these major web. Oh, wow. So I, and my sales pitch to them was every company and maybe every person on the planet is going to have a website and all your business is going to be conducted through your website. So you need to build a website. And they're like, okay, how do we build it? Well, no one else in New York City knows how to build it except for me and like four other people. So pick one of them and good luck. And so that was my prediction, but I put it to use sell, you know, selling something that was incredibly useful to companies, to people, to everybody. 
and made money. Whereas like Paul Krugman's trying to just be controversial here and provocative. And, and, and again, I got into that business, not because I wanted to necessarily make money, although I did, but because I loved the web. I had that same reaction. I was like right. smiling the first time someone showed, this is the cool, this is, and I didn't know it was going to be a commercial medium. Actually, I thought this is going to create the most amazing art. Like books are going to be about, are going to be three-dimensional hypertext now. And that's what I thought it was going to be, which maybe it is a little bit, but really it's become a commercial medium. You know, sometimes when you make a prediction, you, you make it because you're going to change your life and other people's lives with it. And other times you're just trying to figure out something to write. Also, again, it's the negativity. Like there's this guy, Nouriel Rabini. People refer to him as Dr. Doom. And so he's always predicting, like no matter what day, week, year you talk to him, he will tell you this stock market's going down 20%, probably more. So every time there's a bear market, he's on TV all the time. But when there's a bull market, they never put him on TV. Like he's just, nobody talks to him. But when he's, there's a bear market, Nouriel Rabini predicted the great crash in 2008, March, 2020, and even this bear market. Of course he did, because he's always predicting a bear market. Because <laughs> every year he's coming on and saying, so uh, James, that's a, uh, thank you for the insight, because I, I didn't actually think about that framing you put. It's like, you thought about the internet, but also I mean, primarily as a technologist, you want to be involved with it, right? It's like, okay, how can I use it to improve you know, company X or, or person Y? But you have written books about future industries, right? Yeah. You didn't want to like get like eight or nine future industries. This is years ago. My question then becomes, have you veered at all into a world where you're not just a technologist? Because you obviously have opinions and you share them widely. Do you see yourself as someone that, maybe is forced to make some outlandish predictions in the name of media, or yeah. are you still kind of the same person you were late nineties where you get excited about something, you write about it cause you want to learn about it. And then by writing and sharing your information, you kind of serve as like a, a you know, like a tower light and then people can come to you. Like how, how do you think about uh, that? I would say, I would say direction is always motivated by real heartfelt feelings like the internet. Like I just loved it. The iPhone, I loved it. Uber. I remember one time, you know, in 2006, I think it was Microsoft offered Facebook a billion dollars and Facebook turned it down. And so I wrote a column in the Financial Times and I said, of course they turned it down. Facebook is worth a hundred billion dollars. And everybody thought I was ridiculous. CNBC called me up and they said, you got to come on and talk about this. And so I come on and they kept playing a recording of Jeff Bezos laughing because he's got like an odd laugh. Wow. Yeah, yeah, he's got this talking about it. And and like and I said like, look, Facebook's like a mini internet. It's like an organized clean internet. Everyone's page looks the same, so it's very easy to communicate with everyone. It's not like MySpace, which is just a mess. And and I reason I said that is not because I was an investor or because I knew the industry, but because I loved using Facebook. Like it was the first time in my life. It was like an archaeological dig of every layer of my life. Here's my first grade friends, my high school friends, my co my, my first job friends, on and on and on. Like, when am I ever going to call my friend from first grade and say, hey, I really want to know how your kids did at a soccer tournament this weekend? Never. But on Facebook, I could I could see it. So So direction is always motivated by the things I love. But sometimes, you know, like for instance, I'm a big fan of crypto. And, but you go on some of these shows and they really want you to say, well, do you think crypto is going to hit a million? Yeah. Eventually it'll hit a million. When do you think it'll hit a million? 
Well, I don't know. I guess next year it'll hit a million. So sometimes you could just say something and the direction might be right, but you know, the specifics are going to be wrong. And that's definitely happened to me. But of course, again, those are the only things people remember. So yeah, absolutely. There's a, so something related to what you've said then is like, you've, you mentioned a direction you go, right? Like you're making these predictions just as part of your general thought process and how you've experienced the technology, right? Like Facebook and Uber are two examples. You're like, oh, these are completely different than what was before. I believe these are just going to continue existing and prosper because this was an aha moment for me, right? So Professor Scott Galloway, uh, who I'm sure you also know, oh, yeah. is uh, he uh, has obviously put his name out there a lot and gotten a lot of predictions wrong. But he writes continuously that he doesn't make predictions to be right, but he makes them to learn, right? So do you find something similar? Do you, do you find that forcing yourself to sit down and prognosticate about the future gives you more fortitude uh, around an investment thesis, for example, or like just, just uh, makes you force the hard work of thinking, right? Absolutely. Like I have to write an article tonight, actually, for a publication about what industries or jobs or careers will be eliminated because of the rise of AI. So I have to really research and think what is happening here? Like who can be replaced? What are the legal ramifications? What are the personal ramifications? You know, like Chappy GT, honestly, I get that same feeling I get when I used Facebook, that this is an excitement. This is something new that's going to change my life. And uh, uh, so I have to, but, but when I make predictions about what industries might suffer, that I really have to like research and think about it. But then it sets me up for like understanding investments. So 2006, I made this prediction about Facebook. It was valued at a billion dollars. I said it's worth at least a hundred billion. By the way, in 2011 or whenever it went public, it, it went the day it went public was worth a hundred billion. I went back on CNBC and they apologized. It's the first time anyone's <laughs> ever done that. But uh, in 2007, I, I you know history doesn't repeat; it rhymes. And so I, I said, well, what businesses worked in the early stages of the web? Well, my first business worked, which is I was a picks and shovels guy. I Here was the web and I enabled companies to go on the web. I made their website. So I looked for companies that were helping other companies, you know, B2B companies that were, so I, I looked for companies that helped other companies get on Facebook and do marketing on Facebook. And I invested in like three of them and they all were uh. amazingly successful. Like Buddy Media was one of them, got sold for 700 million to salesforce.com. And on and on. That was the best one for me. So yes, you learn making predictions, but it should be a little bit more than that. Like what kind of action can you take? Here's an example. Crypto, I'm a believer, but there are problems. What are the problems? Well, I have a, a weekly phone call I do with subscribers of, of one of my products and it's a crypto product. And I always hear what people are asking in, in the chat. It's like a Zoom call. And I see the chat questions and people are like, oh, what? What exchange should I use to buy this crypto? What wallet should I use? Uh, I, I sent money from one wallet to another and I don't know where the money is now, blah, blah, blah. Like, here's the problem with crypto. It's really hard to use. Like my grandma is not going to buy uh, Bitcoin, let alone, you know, uh, Dogecoin or any of these other, you know, we alt tokens or whatever. So, so this tells me there's an enormous understanding the trend and understanding the problems by listening to what people ask. This tells me what massive business opportunities exist. Now I'm not going to do them, but like 
I hear everybody's confused about they don't want to work with a DeFi exchange. They'd rather call Fidelity or Schwab or whatever. What's Sushi Swap? Why is grandma going to use Sushi Swap to buy <laughs> Bitcoin on her MetaMask wallet? That's not going to happen. So there's an opportunity for someone to create like a, a nice grandma friendly front end interface to the crypto world. And maybe that'll happen. Like maybe Visa will do it or Fidelity do it. Maybe it'll be a new company. Who knows? But you could see as something is, is bubbling up, as industries grow, that you just look at the questions people ask, like the problems people are having. Not the people who say this is a fad, but the actual issues people have. Take the internet. Everyone said in 2000, 2000, I don't want to, I'm not going to put my credit card into the internet. That's crazy. And by 2005, everybody had their credit card into the internet. And you, one of your predictions here, um, maybe it was Krugman's one, maybe it was the uh, Metcalf's one. Um, oh, no. Krugman. Well, the Metcalf one is, for the listeners, I just want to add the Metcalf yeah. one's crazy. Like the guy that invented the ethernet thought that the internet would have flamed out. He's like, yeah, it'll blow up in like 95 and then it'll just completely flame out by 96, right? Let, let me actually roll through uh, while you're looking those up. A couple more, uh, I think some good framing for the listeners around like the quote unquote worst predictions. We kind of touched on a few, but the one that was the biggest takeaway for me, and you mentioned at the very top, like people talking their own books. So there's two parts of this one to mention. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rip off five of these predictions, which are just iconic, right? So Ken Olson, the founder of DEC, one of the largest like computer mainframe manufacturers at the time, said that home computing will never be a thing, right? So he said that in the mid 70s. Andy Grove, like the legendary Intel CEO yeah. in 1992, said that mobile uh, PCs or like uh, something in the shape of like a PDA or an uh, uh, iPhone or iPod would never take off. He's like, the entire industry just looks like they're trying to find the next wave and it's all about greed. That was in 92. Steve Jobs in 2003 said subscription businesses. He told this to uh, uh, Rolling Stone. He says that, no one will ever want a streaming subscription business. And he said the reason is because you look at the way that people have consumed techno uh, music over the years. They buy records, they buy vinyls, uh, cassettes. They don't want everything. They want to be able to buy individual things. like, And of course, uh, uh, iTunes at the 99 cent uh, per song model. And then uh, we talked about Balmer. And then the other famous one is Larry Ellison in 2008, two years after AWS launched, said that the cloud computing it's just nothing. It will never become something. And obviously, all those examples have two underlying kind of like themes. Number one is people making them are extremely important and they're in positions to make these, right? Like one of the takeaways was like, you are allowed to make these predictions if you're in the game, right? It's yeah. like nobody cares what I think about cloud computing. Like nobody cares what Trump thinks about cloud computing. But Larry Ellison, you know, let's hear what Larry has to say about cloud computing. So number one is like, you have to earn your right to like actually make predictions and people for to care about them. So like even the ability to make predictions people care about, I think that's a great, that's a great privilege, right? That means you've clawed your way to that position. And then the other thing is the number one thing we talked about, you, you said at the top is like every single one of these cases, they're just talking their own book. Like these predictions were literally just the opposite of what the up and coming technology was. No, but in the Larry Ellison one's fascinating. So Larry Ellison is the founder of Oracle, which for a while was the only database in every single company in America was an Oracle database. And so a database stores data so a company can use that data. And if you think about it, he could have created cloud computing right there. He, he could have offered as one more additional service, hey, not only will we sell you the database, but you're going to need a lot of storage to store all this data 
We'll do it for you. We'll host the data for you. And that's the cloud, right? And so he could have just with a simple sentence have created the entire industry and, and yeah. dominated, which by the way, he did do. He was an early investor in Salesforce, which was like, you know, cloud sure. Salesforce, Salesforce software. But I think sometimes maybe it's people in an industry, they're so close to it. Like, like take Andy Grove on mobile computing. I mean, this is the guy who literally said computers are going to double in power every 18 months. And he said that in 1969, and it's true. Wait, sorry to confirm, Grova, Grova uh, took over for uh, more, more. Oh, more, yeah, more. Gordon more, Moore said yeah. it, right. And, and Grove took over from, but still, it came from that, that ethos. And, and here he's saying, oh, no one's going to want this. Obviously, people are going to want smaller, better, more powerful computers in their right. pocket, according to Moore's law. But I think sometimes when you're so close to an industry, let me give you a counterexample. Peter Lynch, famous investor, he, he ran the Fidelity Magellan Fund. It was the biggest mutual fund in the world for a while. Maybe it still is. And the reason it was the biggest because he had good returns. He had better returns than the average person. And so he wrote a book about making investment decisions. And what he said was, is that when his wife comes back from the mall, he asks her what she bought. And if she shows him and she's like enthusiastic about it, he buys that stock. Wait, pantyhose was one of the famous ones, right? That uh, yeah. she brought home like pantyhose and he like bought the nylon company or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And and so it's not like she was in the nylon industry. It's that it put a smile on her face. And so that's what shows people, hey, oh, somebody, their lives were just made better because of this. They don't worry about like, well, are they really going to be able to source the fabrics cheaply? I don't, they're going to need to have relationships with the commodity suppliers. Like, you don't need to do all that due diligence. You just need to see people smile because some problem they had before, like, oh, my pantyhose always, you know, whatever the problems are, they run or they get ripped or whatever. Peter Lynch's wife, a problem was solved for her. She didn't say to him, oh, you've got to invest in this. My problem was solved. She was just happy. And he noticed it and figured if she's happy, then every other woman going to this store is going to be happy or most will. And he would buy those stocks and he was very successful doing that. So he realized, he, he curated who he's got his predictions from in a different way than the media curates it. And that's why he was able to make a lot of money. Yeah, that's a great point, right? The uh, being too close to the thing is, uh, I mean, an example that was kind of mentioned there, I'd love your thoughts on it because I know you covered this kind of idea, the, the innovator dilemma, right? It's like the idea from Clayton Christensen, the Harvard Business School professor, was just that a lot of companies and technologies get overran in the long run because they're unable to do something that a smaller, more nimble competitor, which can do it at a lower cost uh, or, or offer to the market at a lower cost, is willing to do. And like in all these examples, like they're so close to it. They're like, okay, this business model is working. Like what I continents, would I even consider like this cheaper business model that would completely disrupt my business? It's like, no, right? Like that, that's literally the innovator's dilemma. It's like, and it's a version of what you're kind of describing. It's like, there, you have to kind of be myopic to win, right? Like you have to be able to choose the path you're going and just execute so ruthlessly and not be distracted. But in the, in the process of not being distracted, you can kind of get sideswiped, which is what happened in a lot of these cases. Yeah. And like, like, look, a classic example is Kodak. So this guy, Steve Sasson presented to the CEO of Kodak, the digital camera, and maybe I'm getting the order wrong or something, but I think this is right. And clearly the, the guy who was the CEO of Kodak thought like, Oh, that seems pretty good. So he said, okay, we're not going to do this. Don't tell anyone. And again, he missed the fact that all these, everything's inevitable. If things are going digital, of course, there's going to be a digital camera. It's inevitable. 
but people like Steve Ballmer is a, is a good example too. In, in your in this prediction about the iPhone, people think that they can somehow control the industry, that or if they ignore it, it just won't happen, or if they say something against it, it, it won't happen. But you know, it's like saying like, like genomics is a great example. Twenty years ago, it cost a billion dollars to sequence your DNA. And now you could do it. You could just send twenty dollars to twenty three and Me, and they'll sequence it in a week for you. So things just get better all the time if it solves a real problem that makes people happy. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I love this PC prediction by Ken Olson. There's no reason an individual would ever want a computer in their home. Well, he was the CEO of Digital Equipment Corporation, which made like mini mainframes, mini computers. And, you know, they missed out on the home computer Thing. So eventually they were kind of going out of business. They got bought by Compaq, which was a, a PC company. And even Compaq missed out on the power of Apple and disappeared. I think they were bought by Hewlett Packard, uh, you know, probably shut down ultimately. So every, all these people are so close to it. They don't think about just their raw emotions, which is what makes sense rationally for me. Oh yeah. I don't want to get into a car accident. I'm going to get a seatbelt. <laughs> And eventually it became law. Everybody had to have a seatbelt. Or, oh yeah, I'm on my iTouch or iPod all the time. Why not make a phone call with it? And, oh, but the carriers, blah, blah, blah. I don't know anything about the carriers. I just think this should be done. You know, Square, uh, uh, started by Jack Dorsey and, and Jim McKelvey. Square started because, you know, uh, Jim McKelvey was a glassblower. He would make these artistic things out of glass and he couldn't, he wasn't allowed to accept credit cards. He was too small. He was no credit cards. Would let it, so he wanted to create a company that mom and pop companies could accept credit cards. And he just started it. He didn't have any deals with Visa or American Express or MasterCard, but he basically said to them, look, we're doing it. Here's how we'll handle all the risks for you. It's done already. We got all the people. It's you're going to add this to your business. And they agreed because there was a sort of inevitability to the fact that everyone's going to have to be able to accept credit cards at some point. And, you know, they, they were right for making, but here's a case where they made it. They didn't necessarily make a prediction. They, they made a company out of a prediction. And that's of course a powerful way to, to stand by your words. Absolutely. And it, it kind of goes back to your original, how you look at the, the direction of why you're making predictions, right? It's not to be a provocateur. It's because you, you're you like, oh, this is amazing. Like this technology is like, maybe by thinking about more, I can get more involved in it. But uh, I think this is a, a opportune segue for us to think about future predictions. With all these lessons we have, 
Why don't we make some predictions about crypto and AI? <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. It's interesting because crypto, crypto is fascinating. It's hard for crypto to put a smile on anyone's face. It's not like a consumer product. That's a that's the mistake I think people are making, and is thinking that well, I can't see it, I can't use it, I can't listen to music on it. So what good is it? But think about this: when you when was the last time you bought a stock, Trung? Um, it's been nine, 18 months, probably. I, I somehow didn't look at my portfolio once last year because when January, the drawdown happened, I'm like, I'm just not going to look. Yeah. So it's been 18 months about. <laughs> and when you bought a stock, what did you have to do? Where, where do you buy your stocks? Uh, I use Fidelity. I do too. So, so you log into your account and you, you say, oh, I want to buy McDonald's stock. Uh, I'll buy $100 and blah, blah, blah. Well, you can only do it from Monday through Friday between 9.30 a.m. and 4 p.m. And by the way, on holidays, you can't do it. And on weekends, you can't do it. That's like an antique. That's a 100-year-old financial system. What if I told you, hey, Trung, if you're really interested in investing, I have a way where you could trade 24 hours a day, seven days a week, including holidays. And not only stocks, you could trade commodities, bonds. You could even trade, you could even make bets over it. You could trade pieces of real estate. You could trade things that people haven't even conceived of yet. You'd be like, oh, well, that sounds pretty good because everybody talks about bonds. I don't know how to buy a bond. I can't buy a bond at Fidelity. I can't buy orange juice at Fidelity, a commodity. Well, guess what? Crypto lets you trade anything 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's just like the most basic initial use case of crypto on top of a million others. And that's the one that's probably maybe most consumer oriented, I, I think. Or another one might be like, when was the last time you made a wire, like a wire transfer to someone? Oh yeah, I, I lived in Vietnam, so I, I know the pain of uh, having to deal with remittances and things of that nature. Pain, like you, the, you make a wire, the money disappears, and you call your friend, did you get the wire? And they're like, no. And you call the next, no, I didn't get it. Where is the money? The bank's like, oh, we don't know, we sent the wire. The other bank's like, no, we haven't seen it yet. Where is the money? <laughs> Like every wire takes two or three business days, sometimes more. And the fee that they, the rip they take is just massive, it's, right? It's 30 billion in fees a year, right? So crypto, okay, I could send a wire to you right in a millisecond and there's no fee. You know, maybe there's like a, a 1 20th of a penny transaction fee, depending on the exchange you use. And it's, you know, that's another basic problem that's worth tens of billions of dollars. That's, and we just talked about two use cases for crypto and, and not any of the billion other ones. So people don't see it because it's not done yet. And it, it's again, like the internet, nobody was using the internet in 1999, but there was a lot of the valuations went crazy, but the reality was there was not that many users. You, you, you couldn't create a social network because there wasn't that many users. 2005, suddenly we have the success of, you know, the beginnings of Facebook, then Twitter, then things like Uber and so on. 2005 was the year of the internet eclipsed a billion users. Crypto's nowhere near that. Like maybe there's a hundred million, 150 million active users of crypto right now. It'll be a couple of years before there's a billion. Then we'll see if it's a fad or not. Um, but now it's just like too early. It's it, it, The fact that it has a hundred million users is amazing, but it's not enough for people to say, to quit everything else and just use crypto. From uh, so that uh, is, to your point that about- Yeah, no, I, uh, I agree. And, uh, it's not not to say though uh, the one thing the the one thing I always couch this with is I mean 
obviously there's friction for a reason too, right? Like there, it's good to have some friction, maybe not as much as exists right now. Well, for sure, not as much. Like the, the amount of remittance friction is absolutely insane, right? Like my family's Vietnamese, my wife's family Filipino. Like we fully understand the vig that's being taken by like traditional yeah. buyers and remittance industries. Um, the thing that I would say that uh, for crypto and why I, even everything that happened over the past 12 months, um, and uh, the one thing I do want to say about, let's just, like, what's elephant in the room? It's FTX, right? It's like, people understand that FTX wasn't necessarily just a, it was a straight up like old school financial crime, right? It's like, you took yeah. customer deposits and put it to another use. Like, that didn't have to happen with crypto. Crypto facilitated that in the sense because it was a hot industry and people were like, okay, maybe I'll put my money into this this place. But it, that's a very old school crime that it was, right? It was a, like as old as it gets. Right. You, know, you ask people for money. By the way, if you were going to buy a stock, you personally... And just like how people are going to buy crypto, you wouldn't go, you wouldn't say, look, instead of using the New York based, highly regulated exchange called Coinbase, I'm going to go to the Bahamas and use a completely unregulated exchange right. run by a bunch of kids doing a sex cult on the side. And I'm going to just take my, you wouldn't say that. Like, right, it, right. that's easy for me to say in retrospect. I would not have predicted FTX's collapse, but you could right, probably right. predict some collapse just because every time there's any financial innovation, there's there's a collapse. Mortgage derivatives, you had 2008. Uh, energy derivatives, you had Enron. Junk bonds, you had Drexel Burnham. So there's always something, but then the industry moves on. Right. That's that's the thing. Like if I were going to say quote unquote prediction, I mean I think people will look back on 2022 uh, when crypto was clapped by you know uh, higher interest rates. Uh, the bubble kind of just bursting of in general, just every asset class took a dive. And then the FTX yeah. scandal and all the other implosions that happened like Luna, Terra and uh, uh, 3AC. But I think people look back in this period and uh, and similarly to what happened in dot-com, right? It's like, it washes out a lot of that exuberance, right? It washes out a lot of that irresponsible kind of money in the market and people just gambling and trying to get the yeah. quick W and it forces people to do the hard work of building companies and stuff that we've talked about from the very beginning is like that people want to use and that's consistent with human psychology and what human wants are. So like, yeah, 99 was complete dud, but what came out 99, 2000 wiped out 90 plus percent of the companies, but then you had Amazon survived. Right. And then Google came out of that period. So like, I think you'll see something similar happen in this crypto space. Uh, you did bring up a great point. I really, I really didn't, uh, haven't really thought of from this perspective, but it's quite difficult, uh, for the average person, uh, to, you know, like you said, right. The crypto is not something super tangible. It's not actually very consumer right now. It's very difficult. And unless you're like one of these individuals, but, there are lots of them, right? There's millions of people that are very devoted to crypto and the ethos of it, but that's still a fraction of what a true consumer product looks like, right? Like Google has eight products with a billion users, like Gmail, YouTube, and, and Google yeah. search. It's like, it's crypto is quite a long way from that. But um, yeah, I think we'll look back at this period and uh, far from it being a death knell, it will be a situation where it's like, oh, it cleaned out uh, and got rid of some of the bad actors and the people without the right intentions. And, and by the way, sometimes the, the bad actors, they might not be bad in terms of criminal, but they might be bad in terms of they're, they're not the best evangelists for something they love. So a lot of people love crypto and love, like particularly the developers, the initial creators, but even they might not understand the full use cases. Just like in Robert Metcalf, who created the internet, makes this prediction that the internet's going to collapse. Like, you know, I remember one time I was 
giving a course about crypto or I made like a online course about crypto and a lot of people were upset at me and people would say, oh, you know, you probably don't even hodl and you're going to get wrecked, R-E-K-T. And I'm like, you know, the problem is, is that you're using your own special lingo. No one wants to talk your language. They just want to talk their own language and use crypto. And if you want crypto to be adopted, it's got to be by people more than people who use the word hodl to describe holding. You know, it's just like, in yeah. like I remember this like 1992 or 93. So uh, I ran into a friend of mine and he was like all glum. And I'm like, why are you upset? And he's like, AOL just released their whole user base onto the Usenet, which Usenet was a kind of sub part of the internet. This was pre-web. So Usenet was part of the sub part of the internet where new, there were news groups. So that's how people would communicate with each other on these, all these news groups on Usenet. So my friend was upset, but this was like a game changer for the internet. Suddenly millions of people from this online service called AOL were now using the internet as opposed to just academics. And that was a game changer for, for the internet as well as just as significant as the development of the, the web. If people have to kind of, the early adopters have to give way to the early users, the non-technical users. And that still is kind of happening in crypto. It hasn't really happened yet. And, and, and actually, uh, very apt comparison is also kind of in the AI space too, right? Is like the generative AI technology over the past six months, which has kind of had a consumer breakout. Uh, you have to remember, like this tech's been around, right? Like OpenAI has been around since 2015, 2016. Google wrote the Transformer uh, uh, research paper on large language models, I think in 17 or 18. It's just, it takes a while for, as you say, like there have been developers and researchers like toying around with these tools, but sometimes it just has to hit the right intersection of user interface and, uh, and sometimes just the right time, right? And uh, that's why even Sam Altman at OpenAI, the president of OpenAI said that they were shocked and just didn't expect ChatGPT to blow up the way it did. It just just was the right simple user face at the right time. Even then, it's only at a couple million users, right? Yeah, but you know, again, a couple things are going to happen. One is it's only going to get better, right? So computers are going to get faster. So just that alone is going to make AI better. But the programming will get better. The data they feed, you know, ChatGPT only has data up to 2021. Well, right. Eventually, they'll make it up to date. Why not? And there's another there's another thing about ChatGPT where the seeds of the, its success are in a story from like again like 1967. One of the first developers of expert systems was this professor, I think, at the University of Pittsburgh in the medical school, and he made just for the fun of it, he made a program called Eliza, which if you say you could chat to Eliza, you could say, "Oh, my mom was yelling at me today," and Eliza automatically would say, "Tell me more about your mom." And so it was like this kind of fake therapist, very simple technology, but it was so addictive. Like the secretary, who was the only user, the secretary of this professor said to him at one point, hey, can I have some privacy, please? I'm talking to Eliza. And so there's a, there's some quality there that we don't understand that's addictive. Like GPT-3 has been around and has been used, but suddenly chat GPT, which is just GPT with a chat prompt in front of it, yeah. is is hugely powerful. So there's some thing of human behavior, like we're lonely and we want to share with someone who could talk to us, even if it's a computer that talks like a human. And, uh, you know, it's like the perfect storm of technology meets human need. And it's just, and again, it's only going to get better. 
Well, let me ask you two questions. I know uh, the, uh, the first one I'll ask is this. Have you had a chance to try the research app that I've been working on, Barely AI? Uh, I, I've been mentioning in the newsletter. I don't know if you've actually tried it out. I would love no, to see what, What's the URL? B-E-A-R-L-Y dot A-I. Um, James, I know you read and write all day. Like I created this app for because of how much I consume. And the big thing it does is uh, it helps... Uh, uh, summarize a lot of my ideas, whether it's from articles or like just bullet points and putting together. And the beauty is it's just one keyboard shortcut away. I would love for you to get feedback on it if you have a chance to use it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was, that was question number one. Question number two was this. More prediction related to AI. And so some framing I've had and uh, uh, recently was obviously AI, uh, OpenAI is looking at a $10 billion investment for Microsoft for $29 billion at a $29 billion valuation. It's only done 10 millions in revenue, so a, a crazy multiple. But uh, there's so much compute necessary to run these models that they obviously are willing to do the partnership. But my question becomes then, is this a sign that the actual monetization of these large language models and image gen are going to be difficult? Uh, and in that sense, like what will be the Googles of AI? Like who's going to win? Will it just be the big tech will win because they're going to have the best models and they're going to have the best distribution? Or how would you see a player entering this space and, be, and joining potentially as a big five or big six company? Yeah, and and this is a hard question because like if you think of an, uh, uh, I mean, there's many app ideas for AI. So for instance, uh, uh, you know, lawyers, or instead of even going to a lawyer, you can go to ChatBT and ask it, how can I fight a parking ticket in, you know, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and ChatGPT already knows all the parking traffic, parking and traffic laws in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and it also knows how to write a letter to the judge to solve your parking ticket issues. So, so should you create an app to do that, or does ChatGPT simply already do it? So I think people have to deal with that a little bit. Like a lot of the things that they see as applications of AI might really just be no more than front end interfaces to chat GPT, in which case it's not, it's maybe not a real business and you have to be careful. Like the user experience has it's to be- It's not venture scale. scale. Yeah, it's not venture scale type business. Right, but in terms of like, who will be the winner of like the, the AI wars? Like, will it be chat GPT? Will it be Google? Well, notice Google, you know, supposedly went on uh, high alert for, uh, you know, AI because sometimes now you can go to chat BT instead of Google and say, hey, tell me, uh, the ten best America, the ten top best-selling authors in America in the 1800s, and what were their philosophies? Like, what were their personal philosophies? ChatGPT will answer this much better and much faster than Google will. So Google is correctly nervous. Uh, and 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 this is a company. ChatGPT is a company that started only in 2015. Uh, I'm actually even surprised it's that old, but it is that old. And so it is possible to be disruptive you know, even for a Google, which seemed impenetrable, but I don't really, that I don't really know. Like all we know is like AI is going to be great and change everything. And it's scary too, because a lot of jobs will either change or be lost. And you have to kind of get into a mindset of how to think about this, how to use AI for your advantage instead of being afraid of it. But I don't know what models will emerge and how a winner will emerge. It's hard to say. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I I, I kind of just want to default to the big boys because 
the amount of compute necessary for these large language models is just absolutely insane, right? So a big part of OpenAI's deal with Microsoft, Microsoft had put in a billion dollars in OpenAI in 2019. That's when OpenAI changed from a nonprofit to like a for-profit company, uh, a cap profit company. So they told their investors that max 100 times return. And um, a part of that was just the idea that just they realized how much compute was necessary. So before that deal, or even in the process of that deal, OpenAI spent $120 million on Google Cloud in 2019, 2020. They were Google Cloud's, one of Google Cloud's biggest customers. Wow. So when when you ask me, it's like, okay, everything we've learned on this episode, what is my prediction? Uh, I want to look at the 360 landscape and this includes like kind of the business model like which business model is going to win? Well, what innovation is possible, right? And then I want to kind of look at distribution. I want to look at the cost structures. And it's just going to be who can afford potential lawsuits from these things? Who can who can afford to deal with the regulators, right? Who can afford the most compute? And I think Amazon, Google, Apple, I mean, all these guys, like the big five, Facebook and uh, Microsoft, I mean, they're easily the most well-placed. I think you're right. But the only thing that concerns me in the way you just said that was it's like bomber talking about yeah. the phone companies and dealing with the phone companies ultimately like that was whether that was an issue or not had nothing to do with whether iPhone would be a success or Uber Uber you could have easily said oh my god the taxi cab is going to companies are all going to lobby in every city and make it Uber against the law everywhere which they did try to do but it was inevitable. It was overwhelming. I guess then the one thing, if, if I were to put this, if I were to narrow it down to address your point, is like, I think the cost of running these models would be the largest, like that would be the biggest moat that the big five have, right? It's just to the the cost to run these large language models or the, the image models or anything else that comes will be prohibitive for a lot of people. And, uh, and again, it might be worth it for them, right? Maybe they don't care. Maybe they just, because cloud is the driver for AWS, is a driver for Microsoft with Azure. So maybe they want to have a thousand flowers bloom, right? Maybe it's better off for them just to be APIs the same way that the cloud is just a bottom foundational layer that people build on top. So oh, what's yeah, happen, it's a great point. But what's going to happen when cloud storage is cheaper and cheaper, when it's only pennies instead of millions? Yeah, you're right. To your point, like the cloud investments that these companies are making will make it more likely that a competitor could come out of left field and just run the best uh, models. Uh, I mean, OpenAI realistically would be the one that would be the closest to enter, but it looks like they're so in bed with Microsoft at this point that maybe it would have to be another player. And Microsoft's pretty smart. Like, think about Facebook's entry into the metaverse. Like, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, did these videos where he's in a metaverse and it looks like virtual reality and it looks really you know, interesting and no comment from Microsoft. Uh, uh, but Microsoft quietly starts buying all the game companies. Like they bought take Two Inter interactive, one of the biggest gaming companies out there. What if Microsoft suddenly says, Hey, all our games are now metaverse and they take crypto. You could buy properties in league of legends and whatever. And, uh, uh, they're the metaverse. So I think Microsoft's been kind of crafty how it's been it's quietly dominating every industry, except for maybe search. And, uh, you know, by and that might change with uh, ChatGPT, right? As you're talking to, that's why Google's code red. Yeah, like, exactly. Because uh, Microsoft, Microsoft is in it. But I always get back to like, you know, another big trend that's definitely going to change the entire world. And it's not going to be in decades. It's going to be in a handful of years, maybe even sooner, is genomics. Like, again, as we said earlier, 20 years ago, it cost a, a billion dollars to sequence the human genome. And now 
realistically, the actual cost is probably a dollar. And what does that mean? It means you could see what I could, someone could see all of your genes. And let's say you have a, a, a disease. They could see what they could start to study, which genes are causing which disease. And they've already done that. The single gene mutations are basically all cured because of genomics. And so now, but many diseases like cancer, for instance, or some types of cancer might be multiple gene mutations. And that's yeah. like an exponentially complicated problem. So you need faster computers, maybe you need AI. So that's a problem that's not solved yet, but it will be solved. And like all problems like that will be solved. And so eventually genomics, you're not even going to go to the doctor without assuming that you might have something which you're going to need a little bit of gene editing while you're at the doctor's office this afternoon. You know, a process now, which is like very expensive, will be extremely cheap, let's say in the next five years. And and they'll be able to see what multiple gene mutation diseases you have and and so on. So that's another industry. People ignore it now because when something's exponentially growing, it's very tiny at first. It's, you know, it's the whole thing, like two turns into four, turns into eight, turns into 16. Yeah. And we're still at small numbers, but you do that 20 numbers from now and it's a million and 20 more numbers. And it's like more than the numbers of the atoms in the universe. So, you know, I think, I think, you know, so that's a prediction on an industry that will change the world much faster than a lot of people anticipate. Yeah. So let's absolutely. put that in the, put that one in the sand, put, put, put it in. We'll, 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 we'll do a repeat of this podcast 10 yeah. years now and <laughs> We'll both be, first off, we're going to both, well, you already look like you're 12 years old. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to look like I'm like back to my twenties and you know, whatever. Like it's just like life's going to be completely different because of genomics, probably even more effect than crypto AI and all those put together. Cause it's just going to like improve. It's going to save your life. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a amazing prediction to end this prediction episode on. Yeah, and and Trunk, thanks for always like making these thought-provoking posts. Everyone should sign up for your newsletter. Tell them how to sign up for your newsletter. Yeah, the, the newsletter is a SAT post, S A T P O S T. That's at, at Substack. Is a trungfan.substack. And James, I have to say thank you. I appreciate every time that uh, you ask uh, to come on the pod because that, that to me, you know, as a writer, right? It's just like okay, nice. People are reading it and uh, uh, they want to discuss more. And that says like every time I've had these discussions, I've loved it. I've really enjoyed the Buffett one. I had a number of people reach out to me on our last episode with uh, Buffett and okay. Disney. Uh, that was fantastic. Well, and the next one, I'm going to tease the next one because I really want to talk about how Netflix decides on what shows to run. And there's a lot. Oh, of, yeah. You know, it's it's fascinating because I have actually been in Netflix office pitching a TV show and they rejected me. So I was fascinated by your, your, your notes on that. So we'll, we'll, we'll have to have you back soon to talk about that. It's always fun to do Netflix around earnings. So maybe yeah. when we come back next quarter around their next earnings and, uh, and that'll be a good time. Yeah, perfect. All right, Trunk, thank you so much. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. 
From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.